Welcome back to UCM Veterans Voice, a podcast sponsored by the Military and Veterans Center at the University of Central Missouri. My name is Garrett Fuller, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dewey Ball, Andy Shaw, and Kenny Wall. The UCM Veterans Voice podcast is now on Facebook and Twitter. Like us on Facebook at UCM Veterans Voice, and follow us on Twitter at CM Veterans Voice. Know you at the beginning for Twitter. Also, don't forget about the logo contest. We're accepting entries for the logo contest until Tuesday, March 31st. Details are on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Now, on to the show. Today, we have a special guest, Vicki Orcutt, Director of Academic Outreach for Extended Studies is joining us today. So first, can you tell us a little bit about what you do here at the university, Vicki? Sure. Um, one of the main things that I do as far as academic outreach is our primary focus in extended studies is the uh, adult learner, uh, sometimes called the non-traditional student, where we work very hard in trying to bring those students back to the college, and hopefully at some point they may uh, go ahead and get a degree and get their bachelor's or get their master's, depending on where they are, or if they're on-ramping and they're, they're high school students and they just don't want to work at McDonald's, we try to help them through non-credit certifications so that they could actually become that welder or work in medical billing and coding. And we also use those non-credit certifications for the transitioning adult who is now found themselves where they need to go back to work possibly, where they hadn't worked before, or they're trying to find something that will be either personally more meaningful or that they need to look at transitioning out of a job that may be going away. And we work with a lot of our uh, workforce folks and employment people where we can find scholarships for them, and we try really hard to do what we can. And a lot of that is sometimes I work predominantly in the online environment, so I can provide them with um, self-paced online instruction to help them as adult learners trying to manage both life, work, and try, trying to better yourself in improvement. We were just having this conversation earlier about some issues that you just brought up. So. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're there and it's very real. And uh, any way that we can help, even if it's just one person, find a way to better their life circumstances and to move forward and to be able to reap the benefits of this great country is, is what we want to have happen. It sounds like you get a large variety of people that come through your office. Yes, uh, we usually don't see them personally because they are adult learners. So I get I do a lot of phone calls and a lot of kind of advising uh, to folks uh, via email or, or on a phone. They'll call me at any time. I usually, if you'll look at my uh, email, I always have my cell phone on my email so that you know the university gives me a phone. So I think I'm obligated to answer it, you know, at any time of the day. <laughs> so because I know they're adult learners, you know, so they're they're not going to be able to call me at two o'clock in the afternoon. They're going to have to call me at 7 after the kids are down. So call me and we can figure out what we need to do to help them get set up for their courses or even answer questions about their courses. I'm assuming you have probably quite a few veterans that, that go through your office. 
the veterans are usually uh, more inclined to go with the uh, for credit because of the uh, GI Bill kind of requirements and things like that. We do okay. have an opportunity to work with uh, spouses of veterans through my CAA, and we do that where we can get them, use that scholarship money to get them the certificates that they can use and travel so that they can become a medical billing encoder and they they can go take that to another state when they have to PCS and move on. So those are the, the a lot of the people we're trying to work with. We also do work with military people out at Whiteman because I am uh, – one of the jobs I have – I probably should have told you all the places I'm responsible for. But I am also responsible for the Whiteman site office. So we have uh, a young lady out there, Courtney, who is our uh, Whiteman site coordinator. And so all of the Whiteman folks who – think about maybe come to UCM, they can come to her as a one-stop place. And so, yes, we do talk a lot about the credit programs and getting them in the right place and getting their advisors uh, set up with them and helping them with TA, GI Bill, and things like that as well. Wow. Mm-hmm. You kind of have a hand in a lot of things, don't you? Oh, I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I always said that, you know, acad- everything is um, – academics and everything could be outreach. So when my title was academic outreach, it's like whatever, you know, my boss wants me to do is academic outreach. Uh, we do have uh, study abroad came under us uh, as far as my, my area of responsibility about two years now. We're into it for a second year, which is really fun to figure out, particularly today, if, you know, with all the, c- coronavirus. the coronavirus. Oh, yes. Poor Matt. And then we have the military center. We have white men out there. Then I work on the non-credit piece as far as the adult learners. And then I have some compliance stuff that I have to do as far as how do we deliver distance education to make sure we're in compliance with uh, Department of Education regulations. Okay. And uh, the the non-degree seeking, I, I feel like that's not just for adult learners as far as... Um like who would it, it be interested in that? Right. Uh, we have a lot. That's where I w- uh, said a little bit before about, you know, the high school student who either can't afford to go to college, doesn't want to go to college, but doesn't want to necessarily flip burgers, you know, so they can become a welder. They can come in and they can um, do HVAC. They can go ahead and do medical side. There's uh, sterile processing for medical equipment. They can learn IT. They can do all of those kind of things. And then a lot of our certificates have industry-recognized credentialing with them. So that gives them a, a, a leg up, if you will, when they go out and they try to get that interview with those companies because they, they have now passed a, a national certification. Yeah. Uh, other uh, certificates be more like a certificate completion from UCM, but we're a reputable organization that's an accredited institution. So, you know, that's nothing shabby, if you will. But it's just that a lot of those are for sectors that don't have an industry-recognized credential. So then what you would get would be a certificate of completion. So do you guys see a lot of people who came to college and decided this isn't really for me, so maybe the next best thing is getting a certificate in something instead of just going back home and flipping burgers. You know, I, I think there's always that. There's the uh, the return, the people who have sometimes that they, they, they've stopped out. You know, they haven't been able to complete for whatever reason. They may be turned to a certificate as, as a, as a stopgap. But we also look at our certifications as a 
uh, move up, if you will, into getting the degree because a lot of people uh, may think that they're not capable of going to college, that they've waited too long, that skill set's gone, you know. And so then getting a certificate then helps them say, you know what? I got this. I can do that. So if I can get a certificate in this particular area, maybe I can go get, you know, so say you're doing HVAC or EMT or something like that. You may decide you want to do crisis and disaster management. Maybe you'll get a bachelor's in cri- and then go get a, sa- a master's in safety. There's all these opportunities that can open the door for them because part of the adult learner that we have a problem with is that self-confidence mm-hmm. and knowing it. Can we come back? Can we do that? You know, I, you know, I experienced that. It took me forever to get a bachelor's degree when I was in the military. A lot of reasons why, I'll tell you that. But <laughs> you know, once you started, it was good, you know, but that's kind of, you know, what we hope for is that resilience to come back and get that, you know, um, confidence. So this is a good segue to uh, let's go back to your military career. Okay. How did you start? Like, just give us from the beginning. And okay. What did you do? And uh, just tell us a story, a okay. military story. Um, I'm glad we have a lot of time because I could talk about this for a while. <laughs> uh, back in the day when I was 17 years old. Um, I was in high school, and I was actually in high school doing work study. So I went to school for like four hours, and then I actually went to work at McDonald's, mm-hmm. and then I worked at a country club, and I, I didn't want to go to school. I absolutely didn't want to go to school. Um, and again, this was back in 1977, so I'm going to date myself when I graduated high school. And at the time, I was the oldest of three in my family, and my father, God love him, you know, rest his soul, he had said that, Vicki, we can only afford to send one person to college, and it will be your brother because he will be the breadwinner of a family, and he will have to go to college where you're going to get married. I said, oh. Okay, that was something to know. And um, and so I said wrong to a certain extent. And that at 18 years old, you know, I knew that I didn't want to go to school. But I also knew that I didn't want to stay with my parents because, you know, I, at that point, I'm 18 and I believe they're ill-informed, they're, they're stupid people, and that I needed to move away, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, I didn't have skill set. So I decided I had a girlfriend that had went into the Air Force. And so I started to know a little bit about the Air Force that way. And so I went – and um, went to all the recruiters. So I went to all of them, and I started out at the um, – it was the Army. And the Army and the Marines told me that I could come in, but I had to score higher on the acceptance test than the, uh, the men. Now, I wasn't like a women's lover or anything, but I just thought, well, that's just wrong. Why do I have to score higher? Yeah, well, did you ask that question? Well, I did. I got it because they weren't going to allow me to be in the infantry. Mm. They weren't going to let me do the war thing, and they were looking for me to be, you know, some doctor or do something higher, higher level, if you will, and you needed to score higher. And I was like, well, that's just wrong. So then I went to the Navy, and the Navy said, no, you can be – you know, pretty much anything at that time, they were accepting women in all of their fields, if you will. But I couldn't get on it. I wasn't allowed to work on a ship unless I was in the medical field. I had to be a medic. I couldn't go on the ship and, and things like that. And I was like, well, that's just wrong, too. And not that I really wanted to be on a ship for six months, but the fact that I was going, I was limited frustrated me. So then I ended up at the Air Force. And at that point in the seven, you know, 77, they were pretty progressive in comparison to the other services where they were allowing a majority of the fields to allow women in. So they said, well, okay, well, I'm going to pick the Air Force then. You know? And so I, I went in the Air Force because of that. And then I've come to find out that um, my father had served 
like during Korea. You know, he didn't have to go uh, over to Korea, but he was a communications officer. My uncle was uh, a pilot in World War II with the Air Force. And then my stepdad, who just recently passed away, actually uh, was in World War II and was a uh, prisoner of war. So we have this legacy that I didn't even know about until I decided to join. It was kind of in your blood to go in the Air Force. Didn't even know it. You know, Uh, so, yeah, I basically went in to to get a place where I would get fed and get a place to sleep. (laughs) But it wasn't my mom and dad's house. (laughs) And they did a great job with that, you know, and, and, uh, you know, thank the Lord they accepted me. You know, uh, some of the times I get uh, I feel uncomfortable. When people find out that you've been in the service and they want to thank me for my service, I, I get very uncomfortable with that because I volunteered to go in. I wasn't told to go. There wasn't a draft. So this was my life decision, you know. And for me, I just want to say, no, I'm just so glad that they accepted me and they let me come in because I started out as this 18-year-old who had no idea what they wanted to do other than what I knew I didn't want, not what I want. And 30 years later, I get to retire out of Whiteman Air Force Base as the command chief, you know, for the base and for the wing. And that was pretty cool, you know. And how did that happen? It just organic, you know, stuff and mentorship that you just see. So I I was blessed. My children are blessed. We had a great – we had a great life as far as that goes. And they realize that now and they should have probably joined the service themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So you started out – was Lackland the at oh, that time? Yeah. Basic training was in Lackland. It was uh, six weeks at the time. And um, if you did not smoke, you should smoke because that was the only way you got a break. <laughs> you know, so I, I actually, you know, I, I did smoke, but, you know, that was a bad thing, but I did smoke. And then you had to do all these extra details while you were in basic training, you know, pick weeds and do dishes and do that pots and pans and all that. And I would volunteer to do pots and pans because you got done a lot quicker and you had all this break so you could smoke. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I got through, but I actually got set back because I didn't follow rules right, you know. And so I had to spend an extra week, you know. And, uh, you know, my instructor, uh, he said to me, I told him, I said, yeah, I'm graduating, you know, finally. And he said, Vicki, you could still go to jail. <laughs> so like, well, it, it could happen. <laughs> so I, I, I was being me all along, even though I was in this, you know, trying to conform the way they want you to. Uh, uh, I guess it's a good thing, bad thing. My personality still still was uh, showing through. You were still kind of that rebellious youth. <laughs> I, it was it was me, you yeah. know, just pretty gregarious. So I had a good time. So what did you go into the Air Force? What was your original uh, job? Well, my my uh, AFSC skill set and thing, uh, you know, ironically, all that hemming and hawing I did about why I wasn't going to go into all these other services. I ended up in a very traditional female role as an office manager. (laughs) (laughs) But I was just, it didn't matter. (laughs) So when I did that my whole career, I actually, you know, um, managed, uh, worked for colonels and generals and things like that, uh, doing the paper and organizing and office management and ultimately got promoted to the highest rank within that field uh, and then took on the more of the uh, senior leadership roles and stuff like that through superintendent and then like a director now would be a superintendent, ultimately a a command chief. So maybe you could go over a little bit of where you would uh, deploy? Did you deploy overseas? Were you stationed mainly stateside? Kind of uh, uh, your travails through the okay. the Air Force. Um, 
since I, when I came in in 77, we didn't, we were a Cold War. We didn't have a lot of the deployments Different and things time, like yeah. that. And by the time we started having, uh, I was stationed in Greece when we went into, um, I want to say, Global Shield. And January when we when we when we took him out and I was there and I had just had my second child. So I was on maternity leave at the time when I realized that we're at war. I knew, it, you know, Bush had said we're going to go, you know, could happen and it happened. And I knew it only because the TV went out. It was like, boom, you know, I'm up night, you know, late at night um, feeding the baby. And then I got a call from my boss saying, I need you to come in. I know you're on maternity leave, but you're – well, actually, it was the command chief. He said, I need you to come in because your boss is stuck in Athens, He's on, and the ship – the weather is not allowing him to get here, and we need to make some decisions because of, of the war and who we were deploying and what we were doing. And I said, okay. So I brought my – I don't know. She must have been four weeks or something. She was born on Christmas Day, so I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so it was like three weeks old. And I just dropped her off at the office with a blanket. And then I went to this big meeting with all of the colonels and everything in the room talking about what we were going to do. Um, and and I walked in in uniform and my uh, command, uh, well, a senior list advisor at the time, he, he said to me, he said, Vicki, you are really making people mad because you're only four weeks into a maternity thing and you're wearing your uniform. I'm like, well, you, you asked me to a meeting, man. I gotta come in. You know, I wasn't going to do anything like that. Just say, hey, you know, I, I need to be here in civilian clothes. And thank goodness I was lucky that if it would not happen now, I would say that. Um, but yes, and so what we did there for my role there with those, with those uh, times was we had to uh, do cops. We had to send our cops to the war and they were going and they were deploying and but we had to do augmentees so I had to have my office workers that we had trained already to man the gates and to do the posting and do all that and we were obviously heightened so they were going to take the cops that were assigned to mm -hmm. your base send them to war so you're going to create a new group that could yeah take we had to seat. supplement that in with what they had been trained and so then it came down to like deciding you know which one of my people was I going to have be a security police augmentee. Who was I going to deploy? Who who was I going to keep back and let them do the job that we needed to do? And then we started looking at what jobs weren't we going to do and, and those kind of things. So I had to do that. And that was a hard one because I had both uh, uh, men and women that were security police augmentee. And so what we had to do, I said, well, I'm going to send this young lady to do this job just like the young, the young men. They've got to go do that. She had to go. And she was a single mom. Right. And so we had to figure out what we were going to do because I wasn't going to not send her to do the job that the Air Force has hired her and required her to do. I just couldn't do that. So um, what we did is I put her on the night shift because I put her on the night shift so that I could go get her daughter from daycare and then I would watch her daughter while she worked. You know, because we needed to find a way and there was no other way that you could you don't have that opportunity to figure out how you're going to do that so so we did it that way and it worked it worked great I had kids so her kid was like around the same age so it worked out really well playmates yeah yes yeah, so it worked out you know it wasn't it wasn't the end of the world to have to do that and we were talking a couple of months that we had to do that until we figured out what was going on but those are the kind of things that I've always had to do is to send other folks to go over you know and then as I became 
um, the command chief, then we were deploying people all the time. And then what my responsibility and roles with that was, was to make sure that we were giving them the equipment and the tools and the training and the education necessary to be able to go over there, be successful and come home. When the towers went down, I was at, I was in um, California at the time. And I was going to a doctor appointment and I'm hearing this on the radio and I'm thinking, this has got to be like War of the Worlds. I just think this is not happening. And then I've realized my girlfriend was the chief of the cops at, uh, at uh, Edwards at the time. And she said, hey, this is real. I said, okay. And I, so I got on base. And then it was, it was so, oh, I, I don't know how to describe it, but being on the tarmac and watching our cops go because we were sending them was – one of the hardest things that we did that made me, you know, put reality right there, what we were doing for our, with our troops and what we were making, what, what we had just signed up for, you know, and, and there, and we, we got to take care of people and we got to do that. And, and then the greatest things are when they came home and we were on the flight line, you know, and everybody got home and the kids are out there, you know, and, and we did a pretty good job of that in the very beginning. And I don't know that we continued to do it as well as we could have. But it it was, uh, huh. it, it was, and then I wanted to go, but then I couldn't go. You know, I was in the wrong place, uh, too too old to go. They didn't need command chiefs at that time. So ultimately, when I wanted to to actually try to go and do that to save someone else from going, because we knew it was a marathon. Mm-hmm. I was getting, you know, it was getting long in the years, so I could, you know, go do that for six months, save someone else. It just didn't work out, you know. So I just kind of supported everybody else who went, and hopefully did a good job doing it. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um, Garrett, I'm going to throw it back to you. I know you have the, the questions you want to go through, so have you regained it? All right. <laughs> so, fun fact, uh, March is Women's History Month, and one of the military myths that we received was uh, women should not be in the military. And since we have a woman who served in the military, I think it'd be a great topic to discuss. Yeah, so let me explain this just a little bit. So we, we put out, uh, sent out a questionnaire survey to all, all military uh, students on the campus mm-hmm. to, for military myths that we could confirm or debunk. So it's kind of one of our things that we, we've had here and we, mm-hmm. uh, what have we went over before, just different topics about Okay. Uh, which branch is the best? Yeah, which I branch think. is the best? It's the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> For quality of life, anyway. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we received this one that women shouldn't be in the military. We thought your coming on tonight would be a perfect opportunity for you to address this military myth and how how you would like to answer that. Oh, gosh. You know, that's a, that's a hard one. I, I can see where someone might feel that way. Uh, but... I remember coming in back in, like I said, 1977, and when I came into the service, at that time, the service required, if you got pregnant, you had to request to stay in the service. You had to ask for permission to remain at your job. That was the thought process of women in the military. So we were good in the military until we had babies, and then we were told to go home uh, pretty much back then. Um, but then as – I mean I want to say like within 10 years, maybe 12 years, we had to give good reason why we couldn't come back to work. <laughs> so I, I, I think that uh, throughout that time, we must have validated um, our – 
capability and our importance to the services for them to change the rules like that. So it's not what we, I, I believe it's on the, the backs of the women that came before me and everyone else and the fact that they did phenomenal jobs that that uh, contribution was then considered valuable and we were able to do that. And they realized the value that you added. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and we bring a different view. I mean, just like in relationships, you know, men, what is it? Men's from Mars, Venus and Mars yeah. and all that crap. Yeah. Um, you know, we all bring a different kind of view. I don't know that uh, a man who is not a mom would have thought about letting that single mom w- take that baby home to take care of that. I don't know that that would – I can't say it wouldn't have happened, but I don't know that it that it would have been – Almost like your first instinct is to take care of that family. I don't. I don't know about that. You know. Yeah, your experience, uh, your own personal experience, yeah. led you to make that decision. Exactly. You know, and it, it, we just had you know that. So there's all these kind of opportunities to be you know a little more maybe nurturing. But we get that whole. But we also had to be strong because you get into a leadership role. You know that is that's a difficult place to be as a female in in a predominantly male environment. You're I, under the looking glass even more. Oh god, the the fishbowl's crazy. They're yeah. just wiping it off all the time. <laughs> no doubt. Um, I actually did a speech about that. Um, but with what we did was it happened to me, and I realized it was I was having meetings and and talking to my fellow male chiefs and first sergeants, saying, "Well, we need to do." We need to do, we need to do. And then, you know, the next week you come back and nothing got done. And I said, why didn't anything get done? Well, because you didn't say we had to. You said we need to. You didn't You didn't assign anybody to it. I'm like, do I have to tell? I mean, you, so it's kind of like, you know. That's how we do things on Mars. You know, you know, <laughs> so finally, finally I said, you know, Bill, next week, you know, Johnny, can you do that? If you have a problem, let's discuss it. You know, and then they would finally come into the office and they'd say what they were thinking and why they had a problem with, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think that we had at least an opportunity to um, discuss it, you know, and sometimes I changed my mind. You know, one of the things about being a command chief or a sergeant major or whatever you call it, there when I was growing up. You know, you'd see them up there, like up on the hill, and you thought, oh, my gosh, you know, who, who are those people? And were, I felt like there was two things you needed to do to, to be a command chief. You needed to be approachable, and you needed to be able to go to the boss and say what you needed to say, the hard call, right? So I figured I didn't have – I necessarily didn't know that I had that skill set until chiefs told me to. I knew I could be approachable. I just didn't know, and I and I had never had a problem telling people what I thought, but mm-hmm. I didn't know that the two would marry up into something professional that I could use at the time to actually call that a job. Yeah. <laughs> so it really was interesting. I th- I've so I've I've been fortunate enough to have both a, a female leader and uh, a male leader while I was in the military, uh-huh. and I think uh, back to what you're saying about um, the way they think differently. Uh, my f- my female uh, platoon commander. As soon as I got into the platoon, she's like, where do you want to go and what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to deploy like yesterday. A week later, I was on a workup. And then I got to uh, whenever I came back, I was under uh, a male um, uh, platoon commander. And it was, hey, I need you to do this, this, this and this. So it was less focused on the individual more focused on the team which they both have their upsides but i mean 
Lieutenant Osterman, if you're listening to this, you're 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 awesome. <laughs> yeah. She she got me where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, I can't thank her enough for it. That is great. I, I had a similar conversation with my folks, like when they would get promoted. We finally get, you know, when they're young rank and they're getting promoted. So they became a staff sergeant, you know, E5. And the first thing we do on the day that I told them that they were a staff sergeant, I sat down and I said to them, okay, I said, all right, so what do we need to do to get you to E6? You know, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about it now. He's like, what do you mean? I just can't. I celebrate. I said, no, you can't celebrate. Well, you can, but we, we need to be making sure that whatever we do for you now is going to lead to that next level. You know, and, and um, he was at a NCO commissioning uh, – uh, leadership thing, and he actually had mentioned this in a, a conference that or uh, a, a work thing with the people in his group. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm, my name's coming up, and I'm like, no, that you know. And this was years later. I'm like, oh, that you know, it's it was nice. You're glad to hear that you made an impact, but you're still like, wow, that's pretty weird that people would be talking about you ten years later. <laughs> so after your military service, uh, what kind of brought you here to UCM? Well, it started with the fact that I still had kids in high school, and they had told me I needed to get out of the service because they weren't moving anymore. But I was actually already at almost 30. I was at 29 years and six months when I finally retired, so I round up to 30. Um, and so they're not going anywhere, and uh, so I needed to find work. Also, you- oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. How long did you serve in the military? 29 years and six <laughs> months. I, I was in for as long as they would have let me stay. Uh, you know, but at the time when I finally did retire, you could see that it was time to go. You know, you need to go because you got young people, you got young ideas. They want to come in. They, they want your job. And I was holding somebody back from getting my job if I didn't decide to transition, which I needed to do, you know, so that others could move on and, and to take on these roles and responsibilities that we had. So, yeah, I, I, once they said it was time, <laughs> you know, they kind of knew 30 years, you probably need to go. So <laughs> so did you complete a degree while you were in the Air Force? Did you complete your undergrad or anything like that through the? Finally, I did. Yeah, I, I want to say to get my uh, – the, the, what they call the Community College of the mm-hmm. Air Force Associates degree took me, gosh, I think I was a tech or a master. And I got to say a good 10, 11 years, um, <laughs> you know, because I'll tell you what, you know, I was having fun. I didn't have children until I was 30. So I had from 18 to 30 to just have fun and uh, hang out and uh, work hard and play hard. right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was probably my mantra. Yeah. <laughs> I worked hard, but I certainly did play hard. And I had fun doing it. And so, but I would go to school. I would take a class here, take a class there. Didn't really know. And then finally, um, I think it was when I had a line number for master sergeant. So I knew I was becoming a senior NCO. And so your tiers, you know, now you're moving up into to management, you know, mid-level management or, or you want to say that. And I knew that uh, I can't tell people to do things that I haven't already accomplished. So the last thing in the world I could do is to supervise somebody and say, you need to go to school if I hadn't gone to school. And the Air Force was was always an advocate for education as they went and created their own darn college. You know what I mean? So how do you tell people, oh, don't go. But, you know, we spend all this money and we create a college. So <laughs> you, you kind of got to get the CCAF. So I needed to have that. And then shortly, shortly after that, I started going – uh, fairly regularly, and got my undergraduate done pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and that was kind of cool because 
when I got my undergraduate, I still had I had children and they were up in the balcony, you know, when I walked across the stage yelling, yay, mommy, you know, like because I have three girls. And so that was pretty cool for them to see. I felt pretty proud about that, you know, uh, what do you call it? Showing them the road, if you will, to, yeah. for education yeah. and things like that. Um, and then so I got my bachelor's done fairly early. And then um, I don't know what happened, but I was in Texas and my I think my uh, friends were getting their master's. And so I decided, well, maybe I should probably do that, too, you know, because I was in a field, if you will, as an information manager, didn't have a lot of deployment, didn't have a lot of things like that. So when you start talking about are you, how do you differentiate yourself for future promotion, you know, education could become that that thing that would make me get the future promotions. And so I decided, well, as a master sergeant, I needed to kind of do that. And then my uh, command chief, so kind of like what I was saying, I couldn't talk, tell people to go to school if I hadn't. He ended up coming and take it and getting his master's with us. <laughs> so we had a bunch of us senior NCOs all hanging out, probably uh, making the instructors crazy. And where were you at when you were doing your master's? I was in Texas. And then I got to here at Whiteman. I didn't finish it because I got promoted. I got I was in Texas for like six years. So I ended up there. I started there as a a master, and I got promoted to chief there. So I'd been there, and I had all lots of mentors and things like that. And then fr- once I made chief, I moved like every two years. So I left Texas, went to California, and then, and then to Alabama, and then to Whiteman. And I was a command chief, so I started doing that stuff. So pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day I was sitting at my desk at Whiteman as the command chief, and I got this flyer from Webster University talking about my degree and coming back. And it was like, man, I should get that dang thing done. You know, I really should get that thing done. And so I actually got it here at Whiteman. I got my master's done finally because they sent me a flyer. We can't do that anymore now, do we? It really frustrates me that I can't send email to to uh, the desk of a, a, a military member. They have to come to us mm. and ask us if they want. They don't know what they want. They really need for us to tell them. Is this some not, kind of legal issue? That... It's the base and the rules now uh-huh. have changed, you know, okay. so – when we when we started out at White Minute and I was the first site coordinator out there, I'm thinking I can go to the cheese group, the NCO group. I could go to the club, wear my little UCM, and you know hand out all our stuff. And it's like, no, you can't do that. They got to come to you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, oh, great. Okay, so it made that a little harder to do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did there. So I I retired with my master's degree. And then this great thing, you know, came with the GI Bill, you know, where we were able to use our GI Bill if you'd served during the time, which was chapter, what, 33, I think it is? Correct, yeah. Yeah. So now all of a sudden, I've got GI Bill benefits that I didn't have before because I never signed up for any Montgomery or any of that. I just went to school on TA and got all my degrees. And then... um, So you don't have to put your daughters in the same situation that your father kind of told you that one of you can go to college. like. Have you used the benefits or transferred those I to couldn't. your— I Oh. Oh, I could not. Well, I, mean, I was in Have the you old... transferred them to any of your— I was not allowed. When when they first came out with the mm. uh, Chapter uh, 33, it, you had to, uh, at a certain year, if you had retired like in 09, you could use the benefits and uh. transfer them. I retired in 07, mm. so I didn't get it. But I got to use my own. So I used it for me, which benefited my kids because I paid the rent, you know, so they had a place to stay. (laughs) But, yeah, and I was just – and some people are bitter about that. I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, because 
this is what we do. We fight for improvements, and we made an improvement, you know, and somebody else after me had a better deal because we talked about it and, and, and we advocated for it. So that's, like, pretty cool. Yeah, amen to that. I, I that was that. something I definitely learned in the military, that if you really thought it was something worth fighting for, it may not actually affect you. It's going to take a two, three, maybe ten years to implement, but if it's something worth worth doing, then, yeah, you should do it. it yeah, because that's what's important. Right. It's for, for the quality of life of others and what they need. So I, I, was, I didn't have a problem with that. So how did you end up here at UCM uh, directly like after you got your master's? Okay. Well, like when I retired, so I, I uh, went on like terminal leave, I guess, you know, in July. And I had that, I had that available, you know, pay until like September. Mm-hmm. And my husband's saying, you got to go find work, you know. And at one point I was going to, I was going to take the post office test because I knew they had good benefits and, you you know, triple time on the on the holiday, you know, and all that. And then I also was thinking troops to teachers and I was going to go back and get another master's. And there, there was a job that came up as an office manager, an OP, office professional for the aviation department. And I thought, okay, I could probably do that. You're a bit overqualified for that, I would think. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but the thing was, I did, doing it at the time, I didn't want to think. I didn't want to have this mm-hmm. high pressure, you know, life or death, who's going to get promoted. You know, I mean, when I was a command chief, you were, you were discharging people. You know, you were making recommendations on people who can stay or go, you know, and um, whether or not they're going to be the one that's going to get the recommendation for promotion, you know. So that's, you know— I didn't want to do that. I pretty much wanted to go to work, get a check, and, and you know, not have to think too hard. <laughs> and I did office management forever, so it wasn't like I couldn't do the skills. And aviation was, like, kind of cool because that's kind of what I know. Right so up your alley, man, right? I thought it was pretty cool. I did find out that our planes aren't jets because I kept calling them jets. And they, they <laughs> <laughs> I said, Vicki, it's not a jet. I'm like, well, and, you, and obviously you don't launch them like we do. <laughs> So I had, a, had growing pains there. But I also, in, in the big picture, when I thought about it, is like, you know, I I may have started out in the military just thinking about Vicky. You know what I mean? I needed, you know, three meals in a cot, you know, and just away from mom. And it was all about me doing what I wanted to do, doing Vicky. Throughout that transition, you know, you, you, it started to become more about the big picture, as I was in the service, you know, as you as you sign up again and again and again, it was a bigger picture, and it became more about, yeah, being about something bigger than just you, mm-hmm. you know. And and I used to say, you know, well, I'm just an office manager, you know what I mean? And so you'd have this just about the job that I had done in the military, but I was in the military. I was in the United States Air Force. So, you know, you kind of can puff up a little bit more because you're in the service, you know. And and, the, and I realized that it was an important role that I had. It's important else I wouldn't have, a, have that job. But you felt like you were serving something. I mean, you really could get, you can feel pretty proud about um, your decisions to serve, you know, particularly when we talk about it being a volunteer you know, we haven't been drafted into it. We chose the service of our country. And that, 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 that speaks, you know, once you get, when you're there for that, it speaks to that. And that's what happened, transitioned into that, my life did. And then, you know, serving students and thinking about students is just as important. I mean, 
President Ambrose, you know, he was crazy about, you know, this serving the student and servant leadership, and, and he loved the military. You know, I don't know if you all knew President Ambrose, but, I mean, he, he loved the military. He was—and that's what we do here is we actually provide and help people become— better citizens, uh, the, the global community, it, it is, we, we provide that opportunity for them to be successful as, as individuals for this country. And, and that's phenomenal. That's something bigger than me. So that's bigger than extended studies. It's bigger than my job, you know, what I do. So I feel like it, it's still serving. I'm still serving my country and my, my people by by being a part of this university. And I'll tell you, I didn't really know that much about UCM other than, you know, hey, they're a little small little college down the road over here, and I don't know what's going on. But when I got here and started to, again, you get invested, right? At, at, when I first started working there, it was a paycheck here. I mean, really. I mean, I just need to supplement my income. I'm not going to think too hard. I'm going home. I can have a beer. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not really – I'm not paying. I'm not doing it. But you, you just can't help yourself after a while when you get to know what we're doing and the people that are here and the, and the reasons why we're all here doing what we're doing, not to get invested and not to feel like you got to give, you know, and that it's more than just the job. It becomes, it becomes a, a, a calling, a profession, and, and that's kind of where I've been. Now I've been here 12 years. And I've had a lot of jobs. I don't really keep a job. <laughs> just keep moving, you know, because I get, you know, from the military, we still had, we had the same job, but we moved to a different location. So I do, I do it here at UCM. I just keep finding a new place to do something. Yeah, the university <laughs> setting is similar to the military where you can go from here to there yeah. and there to here, yeah. Sometimes I get frustrated because the military setting doesn't allow you to uh, bloom where you're planted, if you will. You have to go find another job, leave great friends, great mm. people to get something to help your, your quality of life or station if you were worried about, you know, income. So it, you were pretty much, after you retired, within a few months you were working here then? Oh, yes. My husband was like, okay, July. I was here in <laughs> August. I mean, I was working. I got, I mean, I think I got one or two ex double paychecks, you know, for, for me. He's like, oh, honey, you got to go to work. And I'm like, I just don't think you're working, though. Why am I having to go to work? Because <laughs> he retired. My husband retired. Uh, after uh, like 19 and a half years in the service because they had early retirement. And then we had um, two little ones. And so he became Mr. Mom before they even had the movie come out. Mm -hmm. And he was staying home with them. And I always tease, like, I don't know if my kids learned their alphabet, but I knew they could spell E-S-P-N, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to braid his hair because he grew his hair long because he had, you know, felt like he needed to do that. Got an earring. I said, you're not getting a motorcycle. So, you know, but we let him go for a while. So, yeah. Was he Air Force, too? He or? was. Yeah. yeah, we met in the Air Force. So, mm-hmm. So, um, what were some challenges for you when you transitioned from military to civilian life after uh, you retired? Oh, gosh. Uh, can I just say I was a Republican, now I'm a Democrat, and would that say everything? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Explain a little on that. Well, you know, I, I had, um, for here, to be in academia, tolerance needs to be something that you learn. Because not everybody's like me. Uh, in the military, we tend to be very much the same. 
you know, we this is what we do. We know how to do it. There's going to be differences a little bit on the outside, but basically strong military. We want to do it this way, and, and we go. And we're, we're kind of like all like-minded to a certain extent. Um, and for me, working in – I ended up in the liberal arts college. Mm. And so I had to learn a little bit more about things I didn't know about. I didn't know the difference at the time about gender and – I, I still don't know it, but, you know, male, female, but you could be transgender, transgender the LGBTQ. Yeah. I had no yeah. idea about necessarily that area, that lifestyle and stuff like that. It wasn't something that was very prominent for me. And I and so learning about and understanding and thinking about those kind of things uh, – gave me a broader view of the world coming to a university setting gave me a broader view gave me an opportunity to to think a little bit differently than I once did and so yeah things here are going from the military where like you said you know we all wear the same uniform we have the same it's a bit more homogenized there yes. and mm-hmm. you come here where it's much more uh, a, the right. global perspective right. with all of the different cultures and everything so and then i also gosh i, I probably have told the story a few times it's like when i worked for the dean so the dean wanted to get all of the faculty together before the term starts you know and he has like a workshop or whatever so i'm writing this note and he was well, going to do some uh uh, training or whatever. And so I had said, everybody needs to, you, it's a mandatory meeting and you're going to have training. And the, and, and I sent that email out to all of the faculty and the vice provost, uh, vice uh, uh, dean came over to me and he said, Vicki, there's nothing mandatory mm-hmm. in academia. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, He's he's the dean. Here's my I, I know my food chain. <laughs> I mean that's he says it. You do. You know that was it. And I called everybody sir. I still do a lot of sir and ma'ams. And they were like, don't call me sir. Well, you know that's what I grew up with, and that's what I'm going to mm-hmm. do. So you know, take it for what you want. You know, and so and then you couldn't have training. You had to have like a workshop or something development, professional development. You couldn't call it training. Training wouldn't get them there. You know, so I was like, oh my. My goodness. So these are things I had to learn, you know, on how to change from my military way with boom, this is what we do, and to hey, what do you think? You know, <laughs> it is quite a change. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. But now I, I've, I've adapted to the most part. I mean, I would say that I still get a little frustrated. Well, maybe maybe a, a lot frustrated in the consensus building, you know, because of, you know, we got to get to 100% before we can ever move on. And it's just like, by the time we can move on, you know, the the cans on the deck changed, you know what I mean? We're just rearranging deck chairs a lot of times, you know, but then if you look back at it, and you think about where you've been, you, you might be able to see that there has been movement. But the day to day, sometimes you get you feel like you're in quicksand. Yeah, the bureaucracy, the, the style is a little different in, oh, in yeah. academia. Oh, yeah, Definitely. very slow moving here. Yeah. And I thought military was slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then you get, you know, then you come into academia and you're like, wow, mm, really? Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's it's, not do that. <laughs> it's a whole new level. It is. But, you know, it it is what it is. I don't know. I've never been in, like, worked at uh, Amazon or any place like that. I wonder what they're really like, too. You know, there's probably the same kind of 
challenges in any kind of business. Well, the incentive structure, I think, is what matters here. So here you said that we're, we're very student-focused, mm-hmm. and uh, part of it is to get students to come here, have a good experience, and then go on, progress, and, and give back some oh. way. So. Oh, yeah. That's the most important thing, you know. And then we get the time off between Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> the holidays aren't the bad. The holidays are good. <laughs> I used to have to call in after the third day to see that if we were in the military. <laughs> so we have a military myth that might uh, be right up your alley. Um, one of uh, the military myths asked, why are graduate course options not available when deployed overseas, such as in Iraq or Afghanistan? Oh, I would believe they are. Uh, you, when you speak about graduate course options, I mean, we a lot of our degree programs have went online. So you could take that course anywhere you want to. It's more up to the the member, I think, the student on whether or not they want to try to, in fact, take an online course while they're deployed. A lot of times they may not know when they get there, until they get there, whether or not the tempo is going to allow them to do that. Uh, and so you've you got to make sure that you can do that. you got to manage your time. now. And also, I think we do pretty good, particularly in the vets, you guys' center. I mean, if we got students that are that are getting like um, Fs for not doing something or if they have got to deploy and do all that, you all have worked really hard to make sure that the instructor realizes that you can't do that. You know, mm-hmm. you're either going to give them a U, let them come back and do it, or we're going to take them out of the class and we're not going to penalize them for it because the, the duty calls. Uh, so we have a lot of graduate programs that are, are online. There's no doubt about that to help them. What we don't have is a lot of eight-week gla- graduate courses or undergraduate courses to be able to to uh, accomplish a degree uh, quickly, particularly when you're trying to get done maybe before you get out. You need to have – you can get – if you do two eight-week courses each session, you could have 12 credit hours within the same time as a full-time student. Now, granted, that's going to take a lot of support and discipline, support, discipline on your part at the, as the student, but support from your family members, you know, so that you can get that done because it is difficult. I took three classes in one semester at Webster to get my master's done in the middle of annual awards and a deployment that my boss was going through, and I thought – what have I done? You know, <laughs> was I, you know, I really am stupid. And, and, but we got done and we graduated. But, you know, uh, you don't want to do that all the time, you know. And, and students also, you know, if you're undergraduate or you're, you're enlisted, you may not want to take all those courses at that time because you want to study for promotion. You know, I, I've always advocated for my folks to go to school, you know, and to do that. But I, but I would also say, when's your testing cycle? Mm-hmm. If you're testing in January, you don't take a fall class. You study your stuff and you get you get promoted so you can have that pay raise every year and then once you get out and you get and you can then use that degree, go to school and do it that way. So I probably it kind of messed up some of their cycles as far as school. <laughs> now that I understand you have to take this in fall and then you have to take that in summer. <laughs> <laughs> So I know this question came up in our last episode, but I think it's an interesting question to ask all of our guests. Uh, One of the myths that we heard is military training can't be applied to civilian jobs. Um, can, Can you talk a little bit about how your military training may have impacted some of your civilian jobs? Wow. Um, 
Mil- it, it can. I mean, it always does. I think that when we transitioned out of the Air Force, at least the Air Force had when I was transitioning, they had a program where you went to for three days. They called it TAPS, transition things. And they had like um, the – is it called the ONET, you know, where it was with uh, – Bureau of Labor Statistics and stuff like that, where you could go in and look at what your job was and what that would equate to out in civilian life. So you could say, this is that. So that would be considered assistant director or, you know, like for the generals, you know, here they are, they're, they're a general officer. What does that mean? Well, it means CEO, you know, of stuff, you know, so it would help them equate that skill set into civilian language so that you could do that. Um, and so that training then would be able to be articulated in a, in a vita or, or a resume of sorts. So there's, there's those kind of things that we learn. But in practical terms from a, uh, from a going to use your training to go to school, we have a lot of opportunity to take those training and and turn them into college credit. Uh, I used to do what Courtney does now uh, as for, and you, yes, and what you're doing. Yes. Uh, loved it, man. It's like you know you can just get this stuff and say, well, that's going to look like criminal justice right there, and go to the department and get the credit and do all those kind of things. So kind of fun. Um, and so we can change, we can put that in there as prior learning, as, uh, as assessment and prior, yeah, assess it for credit. And so then ultimately that training does go into your civilian um, resume, if you will, through the degree that you get. Or you can, you can articulate it into, you know, firefighter CDM course, right? So now you can go and write a resume that says, I have this CDM, you know, that I've done this, fire rescue, and you can change that and translate that into that very easily. Uh, I think that there's more companies that actually are looking for military people because of the training that we've had. Um, when you look at um, the the being prompt, being on time, knowing where to, you know, yeah, how to act. Yeah, this is something we brought up before, the soft skills, you know, just the um, organization, discipline, time management. You have to learn all of that just to do your job, period. Right, so. right. And if you don't, then you leave, you're, you're letting someone else control your destiny, mm-hmm. like me as a command chief, to say, thank <laughs> you very much. You will not be able to go again. You know, we, we, we've had a good time for four years, and you need to go find something else to do. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just what happens when you can't do those basic skill sets. And so, yeah, and for us, we take all of that stuff and give them credit for it. So was there anything else you wanted to add? Well, um, I don't know. I think you had in here, like, what are some of the benefits of, like, being a woman in the military? What were the benefits? We talked a little bit about what what are, you know, maybe some of the challenges you have of being a woman. Some of the benefits of being a woman in the military is, for me, was uh, – Maybe setting the path and helping young women that are coming up after you that there is a possibility of realizing that dream if you wanted. I can remember coming in the military and saying, well, if I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to become the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. I might as well, I'm going to go big if I'm going to go in. And now, granted, that didn't happen. But, you know, there were a few firsts for me. I mean, I was the first female chief master sergeant of the base out at Whiteman. They'd never had one as far as the command chief. They, they We had uh, maintenance chiefs and females, but I was the first one that they hired there, and I was the first one they did at this other group. Now, I got worried that they weren't necessarily going to be given another one because it <laughs> took them a while, so I didn't know if I broke that. <laughs> but but there are opportunities where people were able to see you, you know, us as women uh, setting the trail for them. 
and that they can be very successful. And that's important, I think. So you you really just wanted to make yourself out to be a positive role model for someone that come comes in at 17 and is like, yeah. I don't know if I should be here. Oh, yeah. And I, I just want to also say that, you know, it is, um, you know, by the grace of God that I started out like I talked about, you know, not knowing what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden throughout this career, however it happens, you don't know what you're into when you're doing, you're just doing it. I ended up being able to, to be the voice for our enlisted force and that leader. And I never, ever thought of myself in that role as like this leader. You know, it's just they, they developed that in me. They, they spent the time. They, you know, we became family. You know, we're going to, you know, we had people, you know, you sit around with a beer and they would say, Vic, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, I think I can. And they're like, no, you really can't. You know, so you learn, you know, with your peers and, their, and, and your superiors. And they, they took good care of you. And I hope I've done, I hope I did the same. You know, I hope I continue to do that. Um, it's just something that you just feel about, but it was a great ride. I was blessed to be in the military and my family was blessed to be in the military. And I don't know what I would have been like or who I would be if I didn't have that opportunity or if I hadn't chosen to go into the military because it was a choice for me. So I just want to say, I love it. And I love the vet center. You guys are doing great things over there and it's like home. And like uh, Chuck Ambrose said, you know, that's the, that's our living room <laughs> over there. And, and it does feel it, it feels very welcomed. And thank you for asking me to do this. Well, thank well, you for, for coming on. on. Yeah. And yeah. actually, I have one thing before we sign off. Uh, yeah. So we had a controversial topic earlier, kind of. Okay. We were talking about conscription. Okay. And what were what are your thoughts on something like that? Some type of service for young people coming out um, of high school, 18 years old, not really knowing what to do. What, what are your thoughts on that? If there was something to be implemented, would you be in favor? And what maybe how would you work something like that? Gosh, there's both sides of the coin on that. I think absolutely uh, that maybe take a two-year where you go in and, and you do some kind of, you know, core and you learn and you serve your country and you have that understanding of what's going on certainly uh, continues to at least have a framework, a lens for our, our young folks to look through that would be broader than what they may get if they don't have that. Um, and it gives them that thing because we all want to change our lenses, you know, on what we see. So I think broadening that that picture would be absolutely important. But then you know, we're the country that gives you the opportunity to choose what the heck you want to do. We have free will and we're allowed to do whatever the heck we want because we were born and raised in the United States, you know, in America. So I, I worry a little bit about, you know, changing that um, for them. But having, a, having some conscripts, if you will, and doing that, if we needed to go because of the fact that we don't have a lot of young people anymore, we're losing our generation, our population is changing. What happens if we have to go? Do we need to go to a draft? If we had to go to a draft, would we want to have people we're drafting that had had an opportunity to see what we were doing already before? You know, there's just all those kind of things that could happen. But uh, the benefits of it probably outweigh the the, the um distractions, if you will, or whatever that is. So I would I would go for it more yes than no. Uh, I find it. I I thought it was really interesting that you brought up the the freedom aspect because I don't think we touched on that. Mm-mm. But that that's a really good point. I mean, it's America. You're supposed yeah. to be able to do whatever you want. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that, I one think of, that's a really great point. One of my personal experiences living in Korea, they still have conscription there. So technically, they're still at war. Mm-hmm. But one of the most uh, positive things I saw with that was the people um, that go in, they, they have that sense of community and connection because they've shared something. And I think that, you know, this is just my opinion, but uh, America is kind of going through a lull right now that we, we're becoming a bit more divided. Oh, yeah. You know, and to kind of create that common narrative that brings us back together. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be military service, but no, just service just of service. some sort. Yeah. I would agree with you there. So you don't you don't have to do military, but it, it would be nice to do something. Yeah. You know, like we talk about, you know, here to as, invest in something bigger yeah, than yourself. Like exactly. Things you were touching on earlier. Ex- exactly. I would love that. I think that that would be something we should do. But it's always nice. You know, I, I know that when we look at our, our political leaders and stuff like that, and you're like, oh, we got at least one that's been in the military, you know, because you want them to have that lens. You want them to have that frame of reference when they're making decisions, you know, and things like that. And. I would have voted for Colin Powell any day, you know. <laughs> so yeah, those are those kind of things that you look for. So having having a, a service mindset, a servant leadership kind of mindset, like that Chuck Ambrose used to talk about, is always something that I think would be beneficial for our young people and our adults. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we forget. Yeah. Well, Vicky Orcutt, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. It was a joy to hear your story. Thank you for sharing with us. Um, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with as we sign off? Some last thoughts. Some last thoughts. Um, well, you know, in the air, uh, the army have hoorah and all that. I had this little thing that I did. It was called Hootie Hoo. And I had a friend that was um, it worked in night interdiction and that they had the owls was their mascot. And so one day we were driving and she said, Hootie Hoo. And so <laughs> I decided that when I had things to cheer about, I would yell, who do you? And um, it happened that the command uh, command chief before me at Whiteman did the same thing. So all I want to say is, who do you? Thank you for having me here. Well, who do you? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the UCM Veterans Voice. And as Dewey has said, a very special thanks to Miss Orcutt for visiting with us today. It's greatly appreciated. Also, don't forget the deadline for submissions and the logo contest is quickly approaching. Submit your entries by Tuesday, March 31st. More details are listed on our Facebook and Twitter pages. And also, with that said, don't forget to like us on Facebook at UCM Veterans Voice and follow us on Twitter at CM Veterans Voice. Remember, no you at the beginning of Twitter. Have a wonderful day, and don't forget to tune back in for our next episode on Wednesday, April 8th.